0: Hello, and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. Welcome also to Sundar Katwala, Director of the think tank British Future, which specialises in issues of identity and integration. Sundar's written for Liberal Democrat Newswire in the past about how the Lib Dems can improve our record on diversity and inclusion, but this is his first time on the podcast. So, welcome very much, Sundar. And to kick off the obvious starting place, given what we've talked about before, is to think about the impact of coronavirus and the government's reaction to it on civil liberties. I I mean, it's quite striking that a government has introduced a ban on more than two people congregating in a public space, and liberals, if anything, have reacted by complaining that the government didn't do it sooner. So we're in very uncharted territory. But maybe also there's a bit of this territory that will be quite familiar as in in the past when governments have been given such huge sweeping powers over us they very often ended up in some ways being implemented in a way that discriminates against people from particularly ethnic minority communities, for example. So it'd be interested to hear what's your take on the sort of steps the government has taken and should we be concerned about whether they will end up being discriminatory?
1: Well, I think the whole, the whole experience is obviously an extraordinary one and it's a, it's a common and shared experience. We all understand what the, what the threat is. We understand the, the role of state and public policy in protecting us from that. So there's a there's an important trap, I think, for defenders of civil liberties and human rights at a time when they're under pressure, not actually to get caught in in a binary discussion that says, well, what is obviously an extraordinary uh, restriction of our individual daily freedoms, you can't leave the house without permission that that is inherently a threat to human rights or civil liberties. The human rights framework we've got obviously enables this, it allows this if there's a if there's a legitimate reason. So I know in a way I think the very wide support we've seen, including from liberals, people who care about civil liberties for for the principle of, of the lockdown is, is, is quite is quite a wise one because there, there's a real threat there and that the challenge should be around the vigilance around the scrutiny around the process by which these things come in around the time limits and around the impacts and the proportionality and i think it's been encouraging that while we've probably got extraordinarily wide public support for these for these measures 90 95 of the type you don't see i think that is contingent on their proportionate use so i think you have seen some skepticism about the police's uh, use of these powers in the early days um, and, and then a police response which I thought was was also welcome that I mean there's obviously a variation of responses are people uh, using uh, the powers are they using advice or are they naming and shaming we saw Derbyshire police going quite fast but I think that's been quite unpopular with people who support mm. it so I think I think this balance of an approach that um, you know controls where necessary but civil liberties are protected and we see it we see, it, um, we see it phase out. We, we see the need to renew the powers and to show that you still need them. Seems a good way to not put the defence of civil liberties and human rights against the protection of the public from, from you know, an unprecedented emergency.
0: And yeah, and, and I guess one of the problems here is that it's slightly unclear exactly what is acceptable behaviour. Um, So I was walking through a local park last night on my daily government mandated exercise. Generally, everyone was behaving really well. Lots of people making efforts to socially distance, including joggers. But there were some people sat on the grass. And as far as I could see, they were families. So it was not people mixing with strangers or people outside their household. And also they were sat far apart. And I have no idea. They may be people who have no garden they may be people who have very cramped accommodation and i think i think you know the rules
1: are very simple because the government wants to communicate clear rules that people can remember i think it's quite an interesting point that actually the people whose job it is to communicate it end up sort of inventing bits of the rules Mm. that aren't there like you know only go shopping once a week or something when that wasn't the rule so it shows that our brains kind of need something quite simple the reason we're trying to cut out 80 percent of contact is obviously to stop the virus spreading and so we should reduce all the contact we can um it's very easy to say don't go out and enjoy the sunshine if you've got a back garden and you can actually enjoy the sunshine so i think we should be trying to keep the parks open trying to allow exercise the government should be clear as well i think about why it's got the advice i understand there is a good reason for saying to people you know don't sit on benches don't sit down even if you're being very conscious of social distancing as i think people are because inherently everyone just clusters to mm-hmm. some extent around people that are and so you get more contact than you wanted but i think i think some proportionality about this would be very interesting what, what i think we've seen twice now um, in this crisis is very strong compliance very strong public spirit of why we should do this obviously always you know one or two percent um, won't be doing that but also a real sense of skepticism and fear that other people aren't doing their bit mm. so we become more pessimistic about society because social media the media will obviously highlight exceptions of problems that need to that need to not be there but you you end up with the paradox where nine out of ten people are doing what they should and nine out of ten people are worrying that other people aren't doing mm. what they should and they're calling for more mm. draconian measures and that's that that's a sort of bias in perception i think and i, I think i think we should be calm, actually, about about the way in which you can very consciously see that people are outdoors, walking through the park, jogging through the park, but very consciously social distancing in their family groups. So I think there has been some disdain as well for, for the naming and shaming that, that, that goes too far. But I think we should worry about this, this pessimism bias about how we're all doing our bit, but we worry that everyone else isn't.
0: The figures about the increase in grocery shopping, I think probably reinforce your point that... In the early days, there was a lot of negative coverage and fear about panic buying empty shelves and this weird obsession everyone suddenly seemed to have with buying up several years worth of loo roll to have at home. Um, And yet when we now look at the data that's coming through about the increase in grocery shopping, it looks like it's an increase of around 30% that happened, which seems to me about what was reasonable and sensible. If you think the number of people who would have previously been going to work and be maybe buying lunch on their work days or the number of times in a typical week that people might eat out anyway in an evening or at the weekend. And when you add to that, it being reasonable, that is, if you're trying to shop less often, you probably want a bit more stock in. It seems to me a 30% increase is about respectable In a way, if the increase had been less than that, I would be more worrying, crikey, are people really shifting their behaviour in the way that we want? Um, And yet the abiding image, I think, and the abiding emotional impact on most people is, oh my goodness, there was a huge wave of panic buying. And that very much plays into that pessimism bias, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, and early on, I think that, that, that there was that. And we saw it in some of the attitudes data. Literally 50% of people were saying, um, you know, at the end of March, they felt worse about the state of society. Another 20% of people were saying they already felt bad about society and it had just confirmed that. And that, that's balanced out again. And so, so actually, some of the things we've been doing in terms of praising health workers, praising essential workers, clapping for the NHS, this has also been quite important because it has given people um, a visibility of a shared norm and of people who share the same um, uh, attempt to do their best and to protect everybody. But, but certainly the panic buying point, and now I think some of the panic about why is anybody going out in the sunshine to the park? When if you look at the images, it does really look like people are trying quite hard I and mean, you're allowed to be in your family groups um of course so um hopefully hopefully we can keep a yeah. calmness here but what i think has been also um quite welcome is that is that governments and police forces i think have had to respond mm. to this challenge and criticism from people who basically support and understand what they're doing but checking whether that's happening fairly for different groups i think is another challenge again and you know this this is very much experienced differently you know if you're living on your own if you're living in an overcrowded house uh, with lots of people in your family It's experienced very differently if you've got a lot of confidence on the internet of course in terms of your social, con- social mm. connection so if you, if you haven't got that in terms of your levels of isolation and there'll be lots of other things going on i think about people's experience cross-class groups, cross-ethnic difference and so on, that we, we need to keep quite whether that's, whether that's there. Um, just even as a health issue, this is affecting different groups differently and different people need different types of support.
0: Mm. And is there anything you think the government isn't doing in that respect, or the public, se- public services in general are not doing at the moment, that would help um, address some of those potential downsides? I think, I think the digital exclusion issues
1: are quite difficult in the immediate moment because obviously the people who are then disconnected and isolated are harder to reach. But I think effort and resource should go into that. The medium term and long term impacts of this if we're, uh, if we're in this for a prolonged period around, say, who's got a good a school home learning environment who's got parental support and who hasn't got parental support are quite important so while there's been a lot of focus i think on emergency measures school meals and so on i think i think more has to be done about how are how are we going to interact with people who need more support i think where there's a data gap is in ethnic disparities there's just a study in the last couple of days from the university of leicester that looks that um, two thousand people people have been critically ill in this um, so far gone into intensive care and comparing it to people where that's happened because of pneumonia and we see that we see the age profile is is what you'd expect it's people of 60 and above mostly we see that men are much more affected by than women uh, three quarters of these patients are men but we see quite a big ethnic disparity and so we're seeing a third, uh, a third of the critically ill patients, the first 2,000, are, are from ethnic minorities. So that's quite a lot higher than the general population and isn't reflected in other intensive missions. Now, if we don't know whether that's sustained or not, and then we don't know what's driving that, is that the geography of London and Birmingham? Is that where people go to work? People use buses more, people use tubes more, what sorts of jobs they do? We need to find that out in order to know what the policy response are. Is it an underlying health issue about heart conditions, diabetes and so on?
0: Yes, as you were saying that, my immediate thought was the evidence of inequality in health is perhaps what what we're seeing therefore play out with those intensive care statistics, those very worrying intensive care statistics, that it's a very high profile reminder of why the health inequalities that exist in society.
1: Yes, and it might be broader socioeconomic and housing issues as well. You know, if you more likely to live in overcrowded housing, then this is going to affect you. Also, I think one of the reasons Italy was so hard hit was that Italy has family patterns of intergenerational living being, being a much bigger social norm than perhaps other West European countries. Actually, in some ethnic minority uh, communities, that's probably more of a social norm that people are, people are interacting in their households and across generations more. That, that is going to perhaps put extra pressure. So I think that's an area which probably hasn't been on the radar of the policy in the media obviously has been a vast amount to do in terms of you know, just the, the public advice, the economic shocks, and so on. But I think just remaining cognizant and then trying to work out what we know and what we don't know and what we need to know to craft responses here is is incredibly important.
0: And you mentioned in that the question of digital exclusion Um, and I guess the broad public policy answer to digital exclusion up till now has been to ensure internet access through things like local public libraries to be able to provide an alternative route to getting online, quite often a route which also means there are people on hand to help if you need it. Um, And I think that's an approach that's had a lot of merit, but it does feel like it's an approach very badly designed for a pandemic, that the very point at which it becomes most important to have online access becomes the point at which those alternative routes to ensure digital inclusion is minimized suddenly become... impossible to continue with yes i think
1: i think a, a, a number of different measures are going to be are going to be needed and that, you know it does depend obviously on the longevity of how long are the schools closed and so on and what and what, and what happens there but um it's a hard it's hard one to crack in the short term because while your um you know your access to the technology is important. So is your confidence and ability to use it. So there's, you know, if you could just, you know, post around iPads and laptops to people who didn't have them, it wouldn't necessarily be an answer to families who haven't used them before. But I, I do think that equipping uh, children in particular for what they what they might need, um, and to have, and you know, how do schools support how do schools support parents who haven't students who haven't got the same level of parental support needs to be up the agenda now. Um, older people obviously sometimes have quite a lot of confidence online, quite a lot of access online and doing that. And so you probably see quite a big divide there, possibly by social class, but possibly just by familiarity. And, you know, did your family show you how to do this before people couldn't go around to show you how to do this? So I I think we'll have to catch up with this, but in the short term, perhaps the responses are a bit limited.
0: Yeah. And I think it's quite easy for people who are familiar with how to use digital devices to fail to appreciate just how alien they can be to people who are haven't used digital devices very much or at all previously. My favorite example of this is to ask people to stop and think about when you, you, you scroll down in a document by moving your finger down or do you move your finger up? And actually lots of people realize at that point that actually sometimes it's move your finger up, sometimes it's move your finger down, but you just get instinctively used to it, and therefore it ends up not being a problem. Except that if you've never used a device like that before, it's utter that can be utterly baffling. And there's a lot of stuff that, particularly the younger we are, that we first learn it that becomes really easy and instinctive, doesn't it? But if you're trying to learn it when you're a lot older, is is really quite tough.
1: Yeah, and yeah, you know, there're probably some advantages here where people are cooped up with their family that maybe the younger generation are passing the tips up the generations a bit but where where people are isolated by this i think i think would need to take more time especially if we have some phased coming out of lockdowns i think i think working out how to do more in the real world it's just a real divergence as well between people who are eventually finding this whole thing you know slightly liberating bit boring but you know they've actually got a lot to do they can socialize and work on zoom their work's still going and people are under enormous economic pressures of worrying about the situation or, or actually not having anything to do because they've been furloughed um, and so um, i just think that while we're having a very shared experience the entire nation is having to respond in the same way our assumptions about how it's going are very much dependent on the people we talk to and those of us who are sort of zooming our colleagues and networks and carrying on and having a discussion are probably slightly optimistic about well we're still doing that and we're all clapping to the NHS once a week and so it's going to be quite hard to find out how it's going for different kinds of people I think and so some intelligence and some emotional intelligence into collecting that kind of uh, sense of of how people are feeling who's feeling you know resilient who's feeling really scared by the whole situation I think it's really important
0: mm. I wonder also what impact it will have on public support for improving a wider range of public services because one of the things that has often made the NHS really stand out from other public services is because nearly all of us use it um, and often use it repeatedly, it has a degree of widespread public support that people don't view spending money on the NHS as being spending money on something that's to help someone else, and maybe help someone else who they perhaps not so slightly look down on in some way, um, which is very much part of the problem with getting broad-based public support for many parts of the social security system. very quickly you run into significant chunks of the population who think this is me having to give my money to someone else. Um, But now that so many more people are experiencing uh, unemployment or heavily reduced income and having to therefore turn to things like universal credit, it may be that actually that becomes seen rather more like the NHS as the first word of universal credit, in a way, is meant to imply that this is a genuinely universal service for all of us and therefore one that there is more political support for ensuring that it works well and is properly funded.
1: I think that's an important insight. I, I certainly think that's what's happened with the NHS. It's very much an everybody service and, and you feel part of it and so the universalism of it has worked. There's always been this debate and it, it was true in, the, you know, in terms of the 2008 recession and public finance that came out of that, the debate about targeting, where in a way it's rational to target because you're targeting need, but the political sustainability of targeting it reduces for exactly the reasons that you suggest. I think that's very much what's happened with um, social housing. In particular, social housing won't be for people like me. So while it's important, I, it's not my priority, um, what, what, what has happened to um, unemployment benefits and so on as well. I think... Whether or not that all changes it will be interesting to see. It might and it might not. Here's a very big shock event that has hit the economy everywhere. And so people feel that people shouldn't be disadvantaged by bad luck. And they carry on with having their contributory ideas as well, that it should support everybody against bad luck. And then it should you know, support people who are doing the right thing. And there will be, I think, a clash between those principles over time. So you know, when a lot of people are saying, how could anybody live on £94 a week? Why on earth is there a level that's about that? That obviously shows an enormous amount of social distance from large numbers of people who've been having to do that and have found that nobody else is very interested in that. So is that saying, how can anybody do it? Let's change that in future so there's a much stronger safety net. Or is it really saying, how can people like us live on £94 a week, we're not the kinds of people who can get by on £94 a week like the people on the other side of town, it, you know, it might be a, it might be a bit of growth, so I think people are very optimistic about, say, um, you, know, um, uh, you know, universal incomes and so on. I'm going to have to think about outside of shock crisis times when people think everybody should be sheltered from the storm. How, how are you going to build in that sort of broad universalism with a contributory fairness element, i.e. let's protect everybody to do the right things for everybody else? There's a balance there that I think will still be important over time.
0: Yeah and one of the factors we really don't know at all yet is how big the financial headache is going to be from all of these emergency measures that have been rightly taken at the moment Uh, you know and it's like from the arguments previously being about you know there isn't a magic money tree well we've now found an orchard worth of magic money trees Uh, but the cost of that may be a very heavy future cost Um, and depending how painful or not dealing with that cost feels to be that may make some people view this is a very transitory one-off emergency, or it might be the people view actually know this is, there is a long-term sustained change that we've now learned we need to make in the sort of makeup of the welfare state, and particularly, I think, more general perceptions of inequality. And so I think people who say have gardens have always known that in some way they are therefore better off than people without gardens. But the difference having a little bit of extra space in your home makes to your life is now really sharply being brought home to people um, and so it may be that that sense of what counts as a fair society has a much broader definition in future
1: it's very it's very hard to tell i think I think the world once it's normal again will obviously be very different. I think people can be very over-optimistic about how much everybody will remember everything they learn and who we value in society and therefore the world will be very different. I mean, you know, the 2008 crash didn't didn't really come out like that and I think people are over-optimistic about it. People can be quite apocalyptic about these things Mm. as well, that the sheer level of the financial pain will lead society to fall apart. Society turned out to be quite resilient, quite cohesive in moments of shock. And coming out of them but whether they can sustain that kind of solidarity. It was done after the Second World War but it was done because the institutions to capture the solidarity were there and underwrote it at the NHS uh, most famously. So I think a lot of it depends on the politics. I think it'd be interesting for people to go back and think about why were their reactions, why were they surprised by what happened after 2008. Maybe maybe social Democrats and Liberals as part of your political family you know had different intuitions maybe about what would happen. I think, I think social Democrats were expecting a much bigger reordering mm-hmm. of the economy, society, and so on. And the politics of debt and retrenchment and austerity that came out of it were really quite different from that. That that could be a pattern we repeat. Again, it could be that the knowledge of having been there makes it different. But I think, I think there are probably some quite important lessons as to why. Why do people make assumptions about how society would respond. the politics of respond. that turned out to, to not really be what came through.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point because the political fallout from the 2008 financial crash was very much about the overhang of how do we pay for all the things that we did to try to deal with the crash at the time. So the crash at the time produced a huge increase in government deficits and in government debt. And then the big political fallout was trying to deal with the deal with 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 uh, the resulting bill um, and you know arguments about how much we should try to pay off that bill and so on. At the moment, though, it feels like in this crisis, a lot more of the political impact is around the actual measures that are being taken and what that possibly means for the future. And I guess in that respect, this crisis is very different from the financial crash because in the terms of the financial crash, the two basic government measures of one, bail out certain financial institutions and two, run up a big deficit in a recession, those were pretty standard policy responses that even people on the right had previously exercised on other occasions, so the scale was very different, but the basic policy measures were were familiar in in one sense this time though, things like having a right wing government introducing an eighty percent salary subsidy across the whole economy that's completely uncharted territory in terms of tools, so it feels to me like this one is likely to have a bigger impact on our future politics but i absolutely take your point that caution is always wise when making such predictions
1: i think i think the scale is the scale is bigger it just it looks bigger the scale of responses is bigger and there is also i think the experience of you know different you know conflicting views about how we responded mm-hmm. last time yeah. Especially about the fairness of what we did, even though there's no the necessity. I think you want to be optimistic about where we start from now. Um, we were feeling very divided as a society, very polarized in our politics. We've had, you know, several general elections and referendums. The Brexit um, issue, if people can remember that now because you know dominant and so we were telling ourselves this story of this enormously polarized society split forever by which tribe you were in one thursday in june when we made a big decision a narrow margin i think what's come out of this is is a level of social and political consensus and policy consensus in britain now there'll still be arguments about brexit in a year's time when it comes back but you know percent understanding of what's going on in the lockdown no disagreement at all on left or right about maybe it helped it was a conservative government making these extraordinary economic interventions uh, incredible public consensus for the NHS. So a real consensus on the emergency response that's bound to fragment into more political views later on. But it's interesting to find so much consensus there. And you look across the Atlantic, and I think I think it will do something to temper the levels of polarization and mistrust in America. But you see these dynamics really dampened down by the sheer level of, of polarization. There is. So the American system is trying very hard to handle with the pandemic. They've got a president who's an absolute jester, but some people love him and some people hate him. So they're they're sort of missing that. And so you, you see quite a big difference, I think, between the British public response to Boris Johnson's government before he was ill, thinking, well, we didn't vote for them. Liberal Democrat voters very much saying we didn't vote for them, but we understand what they're doing. We'll support them during this and we'll argue with them later. Democrats in America haven't been able to do that because their level of trust in the Trump administration just can't get there. And reasonably so when you look at you know, the way the government and the president operate. So I think there's a, there's a cohesion in British society that's coming through. We could now overestimate that because there might be fractures and tensions and fissures in how people respond to this, what's there when we come out of it. But I think it has checked something we were being a bit too pessimistic about in terms of the scale of our political disagreements about Brexit.
0: I think that note of optimism is perhaps a good one on which to wrap up so just before bringing this to an end and lots of listeners obviously at the moment are reading and listening and watching to rather more things than they have before and so what's the best book related to politics and policy in some way that you've you've come across in the last year that you might recommend to any listener
1: Gosh, the best book on politics. Uh, um, the book I'm trying to read at the moment is the um, is the big biography of Hamilton that, that inspired the musicals. We've had the musical on, and that's the whole foundation of um, American politics. So I think I think I think I'm looking forward to that, and it's meant to be a tremendous uh, book that will increase your um, understanding of it. I think if people want something that speaks to this crisis, many of your um, listeners will know it, but the Robert Skidelsky trilo- trilogy. On John Maynard Keynes where there's, a, there's also a one volume version on that. It's an absolutely brilliant book as a biography of a person uh, in the 20th century but also as the foundations of the world that was created out of the Second World War to deal with an economic crisis. So I think, I think liberals looking for histories of liberal responses could do very well with the book of Keynes but everyone who's listened to this podcast has probably read it twice.
0: Brilliant. Thank you for those recommendations, Sunda. I'll include links to them in the show notes. Listeners can find Sunda on Twitter at SundaSays, myself at MarkPack, and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. And if you like listening, please do tell others about this podcast and rate or review it in your favorite podcast app. Thank you very much once again for your time, Sunda, and thank you to everyone for listening.